Lao Tzu says the name that can be named is not the eternal name. That it's naming that cleaves the Tao into two things, the named Tao and the unnamed Tao. Tao is non-duality, and heaven and earth, yin and yang, are dual poles, and they are named. So as soon as we say Tao, we have not Tao. The word to make a distinction in Chinese, Ming Ming, means to give a thing a destiny by naming it. Lao Tzu Chuang Tzu says, you move from the three to the four to the 10,000 things, and when you start naming things, there's no end, and it's better to know when to stop. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. I first published this episode on Pacific Rim College Radio, but this conversation is too fascinating not to share it with the Salish Wolf audience. My guest is Lonnie Jarrett, one of the world's most recognized practitioners, authors, and teachers in the field of Chinese medicine. Lonnie has a gift for making the esoteric seem simple, and you do not need to be an expert in Chinese medicine or even have any knowledge of the field to follow along and glean wisdom from Lonnie's experiences. We also discuss many things other than Chinese medicine, including martial arts, transpersonal psychology, Taoism, and the art of writing. Lonnie holds master's degrees in both acupuncture and neurobiology and has been published in leading scientific journals. He is an expert in pulse diagnosis, having studied intensively with Dr. Leon Hammer. Additionally, Lonnie has achieved the rank of fourth degree black belt in the Korean martial art, Taekwondo. Lonnie is the author of three distinguished texts in Chinese medicine, Nourishing Destiny, The Clinical Practice of Chinese Medicine, and his newest release, Deepening Perspectives on Chinese Medicine. Nourishing Destiny is one of my favorite books on any topic ever, and I cannot wait to get lost in the pages of his newest book when it is released. Lonnie maintains his full-time practice of acupuncture and herbal medicine in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. He moderates NourishingDestiny.com, an online community of 3,000 practitioners dedicated to evolutionary, ecological, and integral perspectives on Chinese medicine. This episode was pure joy for me to record and I hope it brings many insights to you. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with Lonnie Jarrett. Lonnie, it's great seeing you. Thanks for joining me this morning. Nice to be here, Todd. Thanks for the invite. It's always great to see you. I thought we'd start with something that's completely off topic from traditional Chinese medicine, something that you may not know that interests me, but it's martial arts. Okay. Uh, 
curious about your journey with martial arts. You're a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. Is that correct? Yep, that's true. Can you tell me a bit about that and what sparked your interest in it? Well, sure. I mean, I suppose what sparked my interest was one, you know, when I was a kid, it was in the 60s and we were protesting the Vietnam War and I, I was little, I had long hair and I would get picked on by some of the more conservative people in the community for having long hair. So I started judo lessons when I was 10 years old and that was sort of like judo-like. We were just kids and I, I did that for a year. And in fifth grade, my best friend was Chinese, and we were best friends from probably fifth to ninth grade. So for five years, we were uh, very close. And his family would take me into uh, Chinatown on the weekends, and we would watch kung fu movies. Now we would see, you know, we would see Bruce Lee, like, uh, you know, Fists of Fury and those sort of movies. And we would also watch all these historical Chinese movies that were in Chinese with no subtitles whatsoever. So I would have to watch and make up the story in my mind. But, you know, people were running up walls and flying through the air and it all just really captured my imagination. And, uh, you know, my parents dropped me off at Hampshire College and, uh, 19 September 1976 and I went to register for my classes and I saw that they were offering Shotokan Karate and I just signed up got deeply into it and in about two years uh met a young guy who was studying at UMass who did Taekwondo who was like a third degree black belt and 18 years old who had been raised in South Korea and he could basically jump up and kick the roof 12 feet above our heads oh, and it wow. just totally captured my imagination. He could do full splits and everything. And it just totally captured my imagination. Um, when I went to Albert Einstein medical school and I did two years of work there as mm, part of undergraduate study do working on a thesis and they had a Taekwondo club and I joined that and I trained in that, I trained in martial arts for, you know, 27 years. I did um, Hapkido. I learned Qigong and some Tai Chi, but most of my training was Taekwondo, Hapkido. I studied gra grappling, Jiu-Jitsu for two years. I'm 62 yet now, and to be totally honest with you, I haven't trained in 20 years. My, my body went out, my shoulders went out, Interestingly, I had no injury from many years of full contact fighting, but when I started studying grappling, um, my, my shoulders sort of got ruined from doing that. And the only training I've done in martial arts in the last 20 years was to train my son to fight. I, I taught him Taekwondo, and he went on to do, he uh, trains in MMA, mixed martial arts style. And for myself, um, I have a daily Qigong practice. I sort of even lost the Tai Chi because I learned like an 87 movement form. And if you don't do it for a while, you sort of forget. But I've done, I've done Qigong on and off since uh, 1980. My first Qigong class was actually with Bob Flaws. 
and a man named Paul Gallagher, who was a scholar of Chinese, who was a professor of mine at Hampshire College, and he translated the Tai Chi classics into English with his teacher, T.T. Liang. Anyway, um, I've been doing Qigong more or less since then, and I've had a daily practice now for about 12 years and do it, do it for about 20 minutes each morning most days. And, uh, you know, I think about martial arts now and participating them in the same way I think about riding motorcycles, which is, I, I've had motorcycles since I was 13 and I sold mine this year, one that I hand built, because I just decided I didn't have the concentration and the physical stamina to really handle it anymore. But still, every time I see one on the road, I'm impressed with how beautiful it is. And martial arts is the same thing. I, I remember it very fondly, but I, my main focus in cultivation the last um, 20 years has been uh, meditation practice. So Qigong and meditation more internal than external at this point. How has Qigong and all the other martial arts informed your, your practices in life outside of martial arts and perhaps in particular your traditional Chinese medicine practices? Well, sure. Um, in terms of Chinese, when I, when I, so the new book that I've written, which is called Deepening Perspectives on Chinese Medicine, is an integral perspective on Chinese medicine. It presents Chinese medicine as a developmental medicine and an integral medicine. And by integral, we mean a medicine that leaves no part of the self behind. So we essentially want to wake up and meet all the different dimensions of ourselves. We can call this the interior collective. And so we want to have a lived relationship to the soul and to conscience and the authentic self and to emptiness and the ego and the superego. And we want, and the mind, we want to understand all these different aspects of ourself very well. And we want to be to the degree we know them in ourselves, we can know them in our patients. And we want to be developing in all the, in all the different dimensions of ourself. And, you know, martial arts, like everything, has an inner and an outer aspect. So when I was a young man and I was angry, and probably, um, you know, feel, feeling vulnerable, feeling angry, feeling insecure, I wanted to know how to fight. I mean, just as simple as that. But I, I would, you know, I had an experience in meditation 20 years ago where I literally left the meditation hall and I did two things. I spontaneously turned to my wife and I said, you're free and I'm free. You owe me nothing. And I want to be celibate. And I was shocked because I'd never thought about being celibate. Um, there had never been since I, since puberty, I don't think there had been five minutes where I wasn't either in a relationship, trying to get in a relationship or trying to get out of a relationship. <laughs> and so I, I just had this insight. I've got to take, I and we need a period of time to get clear on our own selves and, and meet this inner collective and cultivate a relationship to 
this inner dimension of the self and get our own lives straight for the sake of a deeper and more profound intimacy. And the other thing I did is I made a call and I closed the Taekwondo school I had been running for 17 years because I had seen from an absolute perspective in this meditation experience, the unwholesome nature of what my motivation had been in training. Having said that, from a wholesome perspective, the inner nature of the training, so, so the dimension beyond my ego's motivation for just wanting to be able to defend myself and fight was um, martial arts, if properly studied and properly applied, helps cultivate us physically, it helps cultivate will, and it also helps embody, helps us become embodied to develop a very, very subtle kinesthetic sense. And, um, you know, in martial arts, when one is doing classical forms and has attention to stance and to breathing and to form and to chi and the movements of energy in the body and willpower and then aligns right intent with will, and studies the philosophical classics and starts studying the medicine, the actual embodiment of it um, develops a kinesthetic sense. Now, pulse diagnosis helps us embody the medicine profoundly. And you know, I've gone very deeply into that and practiced. I started learning pulse diagnosis in 1980. So I've been doing pulse diagnosis for 40 years. When a new patient comes in, uh, prior to COVID, because now I'm doing all my intakes online. But when, you know, for, for the last uh, 35, maybe, maybe last 33 years, when I see a new patient, I do a 30 to 40 minute pulse diagnosis. So that develops us kinesthetically in relationship to the medicine. But martial arts, when properly done, you know, it's a question of fractions of a millimeter in terms of angles and sensitivity to having proper form and transition between forms. And I just think that that helps us cultivate um, will and insight and intuition and helps bring it all into the body in a physical sense. Just as I think also horror, di I don't do sophisticated horror diagnosis, but horror diagnosis for someone in one of the traditions that, um, that emphasizes that horror diagnosis would do the same sort of thing. So many directions I could go with this. Uh, let me just start to pick it apart. Backing way up, the meditation, kind of the, the revelation that you had, you told your wife you wanted to be celibate. Yeah. How long did you decide or did you end up being celibate? And what was the intention well, I know the intention behind that was to, to find a deeper connection with yourself and with your wife, at least part of it. What did celibacy bring to the table in achieving that? Yes, sure. So, so we did that for 18 months. And, you know, that's not very long. I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, we didn't have a necessary set end date. We decided we'd do it at least a year and then reassess it a year. And then we went to 18 months, which just seemed like a natural point. The idea really, I think, is that 
autonomy, you know, we talk, we can talk about agency or autonomy, and we can talk about communion. And I think authentic communion really comes from autonomy. So if I'm clear, if I have a clear relationship with my own self, if I have a clear relationship with the self, and another individual has a clear relationship with the self, then we're both going to experience an extraordinary communion because we're both one with the same thing. And I just think in our, our culture is materialistic, it's superficial. I don't think anyone could argue too deeply about that. And I don't think we're really educated when we're young by schools and by our families into um, an agenda of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. What we're basically you know, indoctrinated one way or another into the rules and roles of, you know, the mythic membership society that we're, that we're joining. So when we're young, we're socialized into rules and roles. And most of these are unquestioned throughout life by most people. And celibacy, you know, is another, another a synonym for it or a related term might be sobriety. And sobriety is generally used in an external sense in this culture to mean not being, not engaging with gross addictions, but the movements from the gross to the subtle and sobriety can just be taken as a, as a term really for clarity or for enlightenment. Enlightenment, not in the sense of any mythic final state, but in, in the sense of um, waking up. And waking up to me in this regard means uh, being introduced to and cultivating an authentic relationship to the dimensions of the self beyond the personality, beyond the biographical self that was born in time and will die in time and has a certain amount of life experience and certain existential problems. Um, there's cleaning up work to do in that self, cleaning up in the terms of the condition of the soul, cleaning up in terms of mental constructs, cleaning up in terms of somatic embodiments of dysfunctional emotional and thought states and experiential states that we had over the course of our early life, all that needs to be cleaned up. And then we need to wake up and we need to grow up. And grow up to me implies um, evolutionary development. So waking up is generally relative to a state change. So shifting attention off of um, the ego or off of um, and its contents of emotion and thought and onto more universal dimensions of the self, onto the soul, and then eventually off of the soul and onto spirit. Um, so waking up has to do more with state change and growing up has to do more with stage evolution, which means having a fair assessment of where we're at and what the strengths and limitations of that are and moving on to the next more developed self. So in the work that I've been doing particularly, although it was present in my earlier works, but very much for the last 20 years, I focused on an integral and evolutionary and spiritual perspective on medicine. And the new text goes very, very deeply into understanding Chinese medicine 
as um, a cultivational practice that can catalyze both waking up an individual, state change, but more importantly, growing up to actually help people evolve. And so I'm, I'm looking at the medicine as an evolutionary medicine. You write in one of your texts, Nourishing Destiny, that the highest mm -hmm. potentials of the medicine can only be realized through our own development as human beings. I agree entirely. I don't think it is a mainstream position, however. How did your connection to spirit, and what I'm hearing from you is this sense of radical personal accountability. You're fully owning your place in the world and your role in the world. How did this come about in you? And did someone inspire it? Todd, I think that part of it was my upbringing. Part of it was the time I was brought up. So I came of age, I was born in 1958, which means by 1970, I was 13 and listening to Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and the Beatles. And I and really came of age in the 1970s. And I, I think this was just really a time of, um, in the West anyway, of cultural liberation and exploration and um, mind expansion. And certainly I was reading the Asian texts, which I found all in my mother's library when I was 14. So I had a philosophical sense and a spiritual craving. And the people that I admired, like Bob Dylan and um, the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and Bruce Lee, um, these were my icons growing up. And they were all people pushing edges, both in themselves and in culture. And the, uh, you know, I mean, Bruce Lee, I mean, some people treat him like he's a comic book character, but in fact, he was a really at the forefront of civil rights in the sense of um, pushing through the Asian stereotype and, and making his own movies and writing his own movies and acting in, in them and producing them and representing the philosophy in an embodied way and in, in, in the best way he knew how. So the people who really inspired me were people who were synthesizing. If you look, Bruce Lee, we can say, I think, fairly, is the founder of mixed martial arts, um, which, which represented a synthesis of many different styles beyond um, mythic membership tradition of just being in a school and you learn those forms. And if you go to any other school, you're going to get thrown out of your school or worse, or you can't study with any other teacher. And I, I studied, uh, you know, Worsley Five Element Acupuncture, which was a system synthesized by a man brought together from many influences. And I think um, I, I was just raised with the, with the value of synthesis, of creation, of taking, of pushing an edge and pushing myself to an edge and beyond the edge and bringing in the new. Um, yeah. So the thing is that, you know, if, if I'm treating you for sciatica, Todd, or I'm treating a woman to get pregnant, I don't ever have to have had sciatica 
or and I don't have to obviously as a man I've never been pregnant and yet we know that we can help women get pregnant mm -hmm. relatively easily in this medicine so when we're treating physical conditions there's no presumption really that I have to have experienced any of them to help the person get better but if we're looking at Chinese medicine as a medicine of integrity, I mean, fundamentally, all Chinese medicine can diagnose is how yin and yang are coming apart. And all we can do in treatment is help create better communication between yin and yang. So we can say that Chinese medicine is a science of integrity. And if I'm going to practice a truly authentic, holistic, and integral medicine, then that medicine is going to be a science of integrity among all the different parts of the self. And most people just have not met themselves. They, they have a very, very superficial relationship to their own experience. They have a somewhat true, but very, very, very partial interpretation of their experience most people don't find much depth in their experience because most people aren't awake to much depth within themselves and screen culture isn't necessarily helping that um, very much getting back to the first question i regarding martial arts you know it, it it helps us become embodied and introduces us potentially to deeper parts of ourselves, but not necessarily because martial arts can be about nothing but fighting. And there are plenty of schools like that. So, um, you know, when you point to the radical nature, I, you know, Sri Aurobindo, essentially, who's coined the term integral in relationship to yoga, he said, integral yoga is a yoga that leaves no dimension of the self behind. Well, I'm striving toward a medicine that leaves no dimension of the self behind. And I can only embody that and practice it to the actual degree that I've left no part of myself behind, which means, you know, facing shadow and doing shadow work. Um, and it, it also means having authentic relationship to the dimensions of ourselves beyond psychological complexity so that the psychological or soul level complexity we have is always contextualized in a in an infinite and infinitely developing context there's so much in that response that i would love to just dive into but sure. i also need to be cognizant of the fact that we're not going to be here for three or four hours or longer <laughs> discussing so i will uh, curtail some of my ambition in that direction a little bit well, I don't, I don't have any set time I need to be gone, but... Okay, well, we'll see how, where, where things go, yeah. Let's talk a bit about Nourishing Destiny, your your book that you wrote, I believe in 99 is when that was published? Yeah, yeah. 98, I think. Okay. Well, it came out, in, it came out I think, in uh, very early 2000 and was being... I finished writing it in early 98. Okay. So I think that is how I first came to know of you, probably 2003, 2002, 2003-ish. Mm -hmm. And that book was rapidly at that time becoming a bit of a, if I can call it a cult classic in Chinese medicine, it was definitely mm -hmm. gaining some some of that uh, that fame around it. And, and so I looked into it, fascinated by the work you're doing, and 
I want to know a bit about a bit more about how that came about and how that has been a springboard for so much more that you've done in your career. Sure. So my, you know, I was always inquiring. I was always interested in depth and my mother had an extensive library in our house, which included all of James Legg's and Burden Watson's trans and Wilhelm's translations of the Chinese classics. And by the time I was um, 18, I had read. Was she a scholar of, of Chinese no, she medicine? Just or? Collect, she's an English teacher and she just collected books. Fascinating. Okay. And I just, just found them on the shelf. And by the time I was 18, I had read all the major Chinese philosophers and philosophical textbooks that had been translated into English. And so I went into neuroscience because, so just to say, when I was 17, I wrote my college entrance essay on the difference between Eastern and Western culture and philosophy and talked about acupuncture in it. And, but in 1975, for a 17 year old Jewish kid from Long Island, there was no way to have the thought, boy, it'd be great to do acupuncture for a living. I mean, it wasn't a thing. The only people no. practicing it in America at that time were uh, Chinese in various Chinatowns, many of whom didn't speak English and anyway, no one was gonna teach me. And so I went into college and studied psychology and neurobiology and uh, pharmacology and genetics. I uh, went to grad school in neurobiology and in grad school I gave my dissertation proposal um, on the innervation of the shoe points, proposing to study it with the newly invented technologies using uh, imaging technologies and radioimmunoassays and um, trying to map out the connection of the shoe points on the brain. And this did not go over very well. Sorry if I can interrupt. Just for the sake of, of listeners, could you briefly define what the shoe points are? Oh, so the shoe points are points on the bladder meridian, on the uh, dorsal surface of the body, parallel to the right along the spine, over where all the efferent and afferent nerves enter and leave the nervous system. And it turns out they do all correspond to the organs that the Chinese had assigned them to 2,500 years before with no knowledge of neuroscience whatsoever. But I thought it would be very cool to prove that they did and also to map them onto each uh, shoe point onto the part of the brain that it terminates on. And uh, this did not go over well. And I was basically taken, I had a A average, and I was taken into a room and told, you're not going to use a degree from our university to promote acupuncture, which is voodoo. If you take your preliminary examinations, we'll fail you no matter what you put on the paper. <laughs> so just take a master's degree and leave. And they gave me a master's degree without having to pass prelims. <laughs> which I don't think had been done in the history of the university. Of <laughs> they Michigan. just kind of threw you out with your, it's with your ticket. <laughs> which is ironic because one of the heads of the neuroscience department, one of the, one of the heads of anesthesiology over in Ann Arbor now is the president of the society for acupuncture research. 
So not at the time though. Not at the time. Not at the time. (laughs) No, at the time I gave my lecture to a packed room of a hundred physicians and research faculties um, from neuroscience and from the hospital. And there was complete pandemonium when I opened it up for questions at the end. And <laughs> factions of people were literally screaming at each other. Why do you think that is? Well, for reasons of cultural evolution. I mean, uh, you know, these were, to a person, scientific material. These were just, uh, you know what scientism is? It's it's the making science into a religion. These were materialists. Um, these were some of them very serious, world-renowned scientists, but they were all materialists, living in a materialistic flatland in a universe that had no interior. And I was talking all about the interior dimension of it and the five elements. And they were like, show me the five elements. And you know, I was, I'm just like, well, look, I'm in a neuroscience program. Show me consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I said this, I had this discussion with uh, one of the heads of neurology at the University of Michigan. And he said, show me the wood element. And I said, show me consciousness. And we just stared at each other. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, anyway, so I mean, you know, and things change. Now there are acupuncturists all over Ann Arbor and they, uh, and they're actually doing research at the school on the physiological basis of um, acupuncture. So, you know, this was, Todd, it, it, you know, it, this was uh, 40 years ago. It was 1982. Yeah. 81, 82 is when I was there. So we're talking 40 years. Yeah. And this, you actually open up in chapter one of Nourishing Destinies. I'll just read it, this sentence here, because it, it's, I can tell how that experience has informed much that was to come, but you wrote, all models of medicine are based on worldviews that reflect the underlying beliefs and assumption about life inherent in in their host culture. So at the time, your host culture was one that had very different views and was not open to the conflicting views that you were presenting. Well, look, it turns out that all our perceptions of the world are filtered and we science is the study of the nature of existence and our place in it and when we engage with the study of existence and our place in it we choose a methodology now that methodology might be meditation that methodology might be using an electron microscope or a telescope or an oscilloscope or an electrophoretic gel that methodology might be studying shared meaning in culture or studying texts or how culture creates meaning. That methodology might be looking at environmental systems and how they relate to each other. But the point is we choose a methodology and the methodology we choose is based on values. And the methodology we choose provides data to us that reinforces, that presents us a world space, an experience of a world space as revealed by that methodology. And the world space that is revealed to us reinforces the values that led us to choose the methodology that we chose in the first place in a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. This is sort of a corollary to, you know, if you've got a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. So if you're a materialist and you want to learn about the nature of existence and you use an electron microscope or a telescope, 
a world space is going to be revealed to you that reinforces the values that led you to choose a microscope or a telescope in the first place. If you meditate and you wake up to emptiness and luminosity, the enlightenment experience will be very powerful and it will reinforce to you the veracity of meditations as a mean for knowing ultimate truth. And from an integral perspective, we actually want to embrace all the methodologies and all the views that they afford, understanding them all as um, true but partial perspectives. And the more perspectives we can hold, the more methodologies we can use, the more whole is going to be our um, understanding of our place in existence, and the more whole will be our responses to it. So when I see a patient, you know I can hold 12 numbering systems in Chinese medicine, you know, zero for emptiness, one for luminosity and non-duality, yin and yang, three heater, four divisions of heat, five elements, uh, six conformations of progression of cold, seven pathogens, eight principles, you know, up to 12 officials. So we've got these 13 views. But I can also read a lab test. I can also look at my patient's creatinine. I, I can also um, interview the patient and um, determine the nature of the shadow that they're harboring and the most efficacious way to work with that shadow based not on Chinese medicine, which had no explicit recognition of shadow, but based on the current state of the arts in uh, transpersonal psychology which is really something born in the West. And um, I, can, I can use all the, and I can apply hermeneutics and I, I can look at the, uh, read classical texts and um, derive meaning from texts. And I can look at society. And in my understanding, medicine is not individual. Medicine is, the individuals never select separate from culture. So when I'm treating a patient, that patient is culture. And I can understand the degree to which um, dysfunctional structures and culture might be giving rise to an illness. The way poor translations of their experience, the way dysfunctional cultural and social relationships might be impacting them. Um, so rather than looking from just a subject, purely subjective or an objective perspective, we can hold subjective, intersubjective, objective, interobjective perspectives, and all the methodologies they utilize to really um, suss out what's going on. And then, then we have, again, a much deeper integral appreciation of um, the phenomenon we're looking at. In healthcare, it's the patient and their symptom. And we can understand this in, in a much broader cult uh, cultural, societal, interpersonal context than merely looking at a symptomatic expression and uh, trying to repress it or just taking the symptom out of context in terms of Chinese medicine and merely objectifying the patient as a syndrome pattern. First question, what is hermeneutics? The study of meaning. Okay. So, so we how do you how do 
shared meaning. This, you know, how do you read a text to get meaning out of it? Okay. The study of how people create meaning. And are you working in some cases with your patient's shadows? Are you going into that level of of therapy well, we, with them? So my my point here is that we all are. It's just some of us don't know it. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know, it's like saying, are you working with your patient's spirit? Are you working with your patient's mm -hmm. soul? Well, the spirit and the soul are always there. Now the practitioner may have no, no elaborated explicit experience with it, and they may have no nuanced signifiers for dealing with it, but every word you say and every herb you give and every suggestion and every interaction, there is body and there is body ego and there is mental rational ego and there is um, mind and there is consciousness and there's soul and the subconscious and pre-conscious and the authentic conscience and the superego, which are all the interjected rules and roles from culture. And there is spirit, and all these things are always there. So if we're going to call Chinese medicine holistic, how can it be holistic if, we, if we're leaving out, you know, 95% of who and what a human being is and merely objectifying them thermodynamically? Mm. What use, actually, have you found in kind of the more esoteric... Uh, point combinations in acupuncture to help bring up some of the aspects of the shadow and to help a person become more aware of it and and hopefully find resolution yeah there are a couple things to say here um so shadow has an embodied component to it and there are different kinds of shadow right there's Interjected shadow, which means we've taken it in from outside of ourselves. In other words, people might be living with hostility or some belief or some aggression or shame that just simply isn't theirs, that they ingested when they were young. Shadow just Projection. So we introjection is taking things in from the outside, not congruent with true self, and um, carrying them along of us. There's projection, which is taking unowned part of ourselves and projecting it externally on other people and other things. And there can be positive and negative projection. Negative projection would would be, you know, if I'm very arrogant, not like is arrogant because I'm arrogant, but I won't see it in myself. But there can be positive projection too in terms of a person disowning their own divinity, their own sacred nature, their own spirit, and then projecting that on a teacher or projecting that on a spiritual um, figure as um, refusing to see that person's shadow and then elevating the teacher in an unwholesome way because they won't take responsibility for that development in their own selves. And shadow can also be present to split ego states, which means that um, 
many of us, most of us have sub-personalities, right? Sub-personalities, egos that are different ages. So we have a leading edge, you know, maybe who's 40, 50, 60, 70 years old and a 70 years of life experience, but some people, right, can... Uh, to, let's use the word regress, like they get easily triggered, and all of a sudden there's a sub-personality there. So these are all, all um, types of shadow. Now let's understand that shadow can be embodied, has a physical component, and in Chinese medicine we can understand that as path pathogens. So we can understand, for instance, that the healthy stomach, spleen, and pancreas, the healthy earth element, takes life experience and digests it so it can abstract the meaning from our experience to nourish the mind and nourish the soul so we can learn and grow while allowing the intestines, the large intestine, to eliminate all in the experience that's not congruent with true self that doesn't belong in us. And we can understand when there's dysfunction in the earth element that rather than making chi and blood to nourish the muscles so we can take productive actions in the world, instead the earth element engenders dampness. And that dampness can exist physically as phlegm, lipomas, masses that grow, <clears throat> sinus congestion, candida, dysbiosis. But on a psychological level, dampness can be neediness, it can be worry, excessive neediness, a feeling of not being enough, a worry that I give and I give and I give and I never get back and no matter how well I eat, I seem to tolerate less and less food and I have to eat very, very purely and be more and more controlling and I'm sort of cut off from, and maybe I have leaky gut and I'm cut off no, even though I eat all the healthiest food in the world, I'm not effectively making blood and nourishing myself. And then I project this on others as um, taking advantage of me. You see? So we can deal with dampness in Chinese medicine physiologically through diet and through the prescription of herbs and through acupuncture points that um, diminish the presence of damp and tonify spleen chi and enable those organs to digest dampness, but that won't remove the fundamental problem. So we have to help the person psychologically reframe, understand the issue, understand how their symptom is the embodiment metaphorically of an underlying condition that is actually present in their how they think about themselves, how they think about lives, and then we can investigate where did these ideas come from? Where did these thoughts come from? In what way do emotions dysfunctionally feed into these thoughts and, and support these thoughts? And how do we get more of an objective relationship to our thought and to our emotional states and begin to disembed ourselves. So we need to disembed ourselves from this structure of creating dampness, of turning, watch, of turning potential sources of nourishment in life into burdens that we just carry along. And we have to do that through exercise, we have to do it through proper diet, but we also have to understand in real time how our neediness and our worry, for instance, 
and our feel our excessive compulsion to give to others and to never say no and not be authentic and speak up to our, so for ourselves and set appropriate boundaries in terms of giving or asking our needs to be met. Um, we have to address it on all those issues too and then we can have an integral approach to the shadow as opposed to just thinking, you know, if I do these five, as you said, esoteric points, they're going to resolve shadow because shadow's not going to resolve unless a person wants to resolve it. People always ask me, can you help me stop smoking? And my first question is, do you want to stop smoking? And anyone in the world who wants to stop smoking, acupuncture will help them stop smoking. And if they don't want to stop smoking, there's, there are no, there's no esoteric combination of points that's magically going to make a want a person stop smoking. What I've always loved and appreciated about your teachings and your practice is that, in in my perspective anyway, is what you've just spoken of is what you what you ask for of your patients, which is this integral, uh, holistic approach from within, where they are recognizing their own potential lack of accountability, and and you're bringing it to the forefront uh, when you treat patients. And I I, I know I've seen sometimes I've, I'll call it you pressing some buttons and maybe the patient doesn't like those buttons being pressed, but mm -hmm. I've also witnessed the results that you get from doing that. And this deep personal work that you're speaking of is it is, it's painful. It's challenging. It's it often recognizing the shadows and, and addressing those is often something that people don't want to do. And I love in your approach that you're, I, I'll say you're demanding the very best out of your patients and you're taking them to, to levels that they wouldn't get otherwise just by having someone stick some needles in them to treat the syndrome or to treat the symptoms. Well, for those who engage, you know, and it's always a relatively small percentage, people engage at different levels. I mean, I have patients who've been coming 25 years and they come in and tell me where it hurts and what movies they saw. <laughs> so so it, it really, it really depends on the level um, people engage at. And, you know, for me, the whole beauty in the medicine really comes from um, a few things. One, from helping these people who are taking the hero's journey. And to me, nothing is more exciting and thrilling than that. And then the other end of the spectrum is really just offering people who are suffering ter terribly compassion. So, I mean, in the, in the early 90s for five years, I ran a program where anyone with HIV could come and get treated for free, no cost at all. They just had to pay, um, they had to pay whatever their herbs cost. And that was the only charge. And um, so I, that was essentially, to be perfectly honest back then, that was just hospice work. I mean, I was seeing some of these people six, seven days a week, um, the last five, six, seven, eight weeks of their lives. Anyway, that ran five years and I found doing work like that. And I find working with people who are, who are, who are serious, serious um, illnesses, um, probably dying, I, who are just heroes. I mean, they have dignity. I find that some of the most moving work. And the other end is people who are really alive, <laughs> fully, fully and completely alive, really wanting, 
really understanding that medicine isn't a personal matter and that their integral health and their integral development that healing from their traumas isn't strictly a personal affair. It's something they need to get out of way so they can self-actualize in this incarnation and so they can be of service to others to help them with their suffering and that their wholeness and their healing is a debt that they owe to everything and everyone else and particularly to what put them here because I don't believe anyone gets put here to suffer. That doesn't mean we don't suffer. I just don't think it's the main event. Right. And hearing you, you speak of that, do you ever, I don't want to use the word fire patients, but do you ever turn a patient away after some time because they're not willing to participate in the more integral type of healing and they just want you to treat their knee pain? Or no, are you open to it all? No, I don't do that at all, Todd. The only people I've thrown out of my practice are people who don't play by the rules, habitually miss appointments, and won't take responsibility for it, or are incredibly hostile. Mm-hmm. You know, early on, when we're young practitioners, we feel like, we should be able to find the tools in ourselves to meet everybody. And, you know, when you're dealing with the public, look, there are just some people out there that I don't want to meet. I, what I have found is that one miserable patient can ruin my enjoyment of the other 49 that I'm treating in a week. And I have explicitly asked some people to leave as early as three minutes into an interview, five minutes into an interview. Hmm. I had a man come in and he informed me that he was a, a classical pianist and composer and he had carpal tunnel syndrome and he wanted me to treat him so he could finish his last symphony and as soon as it was done, he was going to blow his brains out. And I just said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. Hmm. Um, other people, I would ask one or two questions and they would say to me, I'm not going to answer that. I had a woman recently, I did a intake on a woman and, uh, I said, you know, really nice to meet you. I'm going to ask you some questions and you can feel free to answer any questions that you, you know, to any degree you feel comfortable, just like you said to me at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, when I'm done, I'll explain a little bit about Chinese medicine. And she goes, well, I'm certainly not going to sit here and have a man explaining things to me. <laughs> and I just said, you know, I don't think we're going to be a good match. <laughs> now, how do you, when you get this, you sense this friction and going back to shadow, how do you know this isn't, or maybe it is that projection of your own shadow onto them or, or the that patient triggering something that is unhealed within you? Well, look, the whole universe is a projection. I mean, from a Buddhist point of view, everything that exists is a projection. And I'd never take for granted, there's always some degree of projection in all experience. Mm -hmm. There's no experience we have that doesn't have a degree of projection. But... Um, 
as long as people show up, they leave, there's a sign that says, please leave your shoes at the door. As long as they come relatively on time, leave their shoes at the door, are generally polite. <laughs> they don't have to engage with me on any deep level and I'll work with them for 30 years and then be perfectly fine. But if, if people get, um, you know, there are some people who are just deeply disturbed and, and I don't need that. Yeah. And I've worked with severely mentally ill people. I'm not talking about disturbed in that way. I'm talking yeah. about total hostility they're projecting on me. And I just, you know, I don't have the energy for that. <laughs> Let's go back to the book, Nourishing Destiny. Sure. Are you surprised or were you 20-some years ago surprised at the, the impact of this book? and how it was becoming kind of this underground favorite book within the Chinese medicine community or most hated book. However you want to look at it, I'm sure that it brought up a lot of contention as well. Um, I guess there are some people who hate the book. Um, that's all projection. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to be perfectly honest, I absolutely, totally believed in it. My goal was to write the best book on Chinese medicine that had been written. You asked me part of my motivation. Part of my motivation was when I read The Web That Has No Weaver, yeah. which I got the first edition copy the week it came out. Um, my parents read about it in the New York Times and my mother sent it to me. Wow. Because she knew of my interest in Chinese medicine. And the only other book I had on Chinese medicine at that time, which was any good at all, was Montford Porkert's first text. I think it was called Theoretical Foundations of Chinese Medicine. So, um, so I, I read Ted's book. You know, to, I, I consider Ted a, if not a mentor anymore, at least a good friend. Mm -hmm. But he had this uh, footnote back or an appendix on the five elements and he completely tore apart the five elements completely cynically as being superstitious nonsense hmm. and nourishing and my response was i can write a better book than this i was like somebody has there's a beauty in and there's an incomparable mystery and beauty and depth here that is just not contained here and it, uh, to be honest, it pissed me off that he was giving it such short shrift, I thought very unjustly. And I set out on a course to convey that beauty in a book. And Nourishing Destiny was rejected from the first 40 publishers. When I, I called uh, Churchill Livingston on the phone and said, why did you reject this book? And they said, it has no commercial potential. There's no readership for this. Well, I've sold 15,000 copies, which in mm -hmm. our profession is, is pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. You know, this is not a book, because I published it myself, it's not a book that was going to be put in Barnes & Noble and an airport uh, bookstores. Like Leon's book, Dragon Rises, sold about 50,000 copies, but that's because he went through a publisher. Anyway, Todd, I, I always believed in it. And I said to myself, well, if nobody's going to publish this, uh, 
you know, Shambhala Press wrote three times and asked to look at it three times and each time rejected it. Hmm. And they were asking me. So I, I was talking to Jake Fratkin. This was at the dawn of the internet. And he said, Lonnie, just publish it yourself. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, if you get a book publisher, you'll make a dollar a copy after expenses. And if you publish it yourself, you'll get to keep all the money. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can publish my own book. And he said, sure. And he gave me a little advice. And I, it was the dawn of the internet. I couldn't have done it two years before, right? But this was 1998. And all of a sudden, we had the internet and I could do it. What did Ted think of the book? Ted oh, I Capjack. think he liked it. He told me my, he thought my second one was much better. Okay. He liked it a lot more. He and When I sent him the second one, he wrote back in, and was very, very positive about it and thought I had done a real upgrade. Mm. How long did this one take you to write? Uh, the nourishing second. Well, nourishing. Oh, either of them. Clinical well, practice. Nourishing or... Destiny was 15 years. Wow. So you I were mid-20s. Started, started in 85, mostly finished in 98 and by Early 2000, it was out, and I and 99, you know, it was in editing. What happened with that book is I I gave it to an editor who did nothing for a year and lied to me about it, and it turned out she had had a mental breakdown and was completely delusional. Hmm. So I had to get another editor, and after a year and a half, I had to sue her to get the manuscript back because she had only edited like 40 pages. Hmm. So then I then I found it so the book was sort of done and then I found another editor and I, I rewrote anyway, that was done in 2000. Um, in two, then I thought I'd never write another book after going through what I went through getting nourishing destiny published. And then one night I sat up in bed and my wife said, what is it? And I said, I have to write another book, <laughs> the clinical practice book. The I woke up literally and had the whole thing as it is now. Wow. Like it was presented to me en toto. And I was told, write this book. I wrote every word in that book in my clinic, seeing three patients an hour. I did not write a single word. I made indexes and table of contents and stuff when I wasn't in the clinic. But every word I wrote in every chapter was written at my desk with three people on treatment tables. And I would do a point combination of points and I'd run out and wrote what I had just did and why. So everything was totally authentic and totally fresh. And this new book has taken 15 years. Nourishing Destiny came out 2005. And I mean, cl clinical practice. Came out 2005. And a few weeks after it was done, I started this book. Another 15-year haul. What keeps yeah. you going during that? Uh, with nourishing destiny, with with the new one, deepening perspective, like there must be so many. I would imagine that personally, I would feel so many times just frustrated to the point of wanting to give up. Are you feeling that or experiencing that at all? Um, in nourishing destiny, there were times I was <clears throat> literally in tears, frustrated with the process of it. I didn't know. It's, I knew how to write in a technical sense, but I didn't know how to manage a project of that time scale and proportion. 
But now I'm totally chill, man. I, I sit down and I write while it's flowing. And if I sit there for 15 minutes and nothing's coming, I go pick up a guitar or I get on my bike and go for a ride. This text is a massive, massive synthesis of psychoanalysis, transpersonal psychology, all the developmental psychologists with the developmental schema from um, the Taoist canon, the Buddhist texts, the Vedantic texts. I've, I've mapped all these developmental schemas guided by Wil Ken Wilber's work um, and looked at them in terms of medicine and in terms of how medicine is state and stage appropriate and how to diagnose stage and the state of each patient and how to engender deeper state experience in higher stage development using Chinese medicine. So it's a massive synthesis. And there are times when it's just, I can't grok it, I can't get it. It's just more than I can understand. And when that happens now, I don't sweat it at all. I'm like, okay, I go out for a bike ride and 20 minutes later, I'm riding across the mountains here where I live. And I go, oh, and the whole sentence will come to me or the whole thing will reframe. So I've learned how to let the unconscious do much of the work and how not to have to think it all out. Of course, thinking's involved, but I've really learned how to um, let things gestate in the unconsciousness and to let the, pre, the subconscious and the unconscious do a lot of the work to sort of incubate the synthesis. And then when I'm writing, I'm really mostly just taking dictation. 20 plus years after Nourishing Destiny was completed, do you ever look back at it and feel there's, um, that you're not fully aligned with what you had written back then? Are there any incongruencies, anything that you well, would, would do differently? That's a great question. No, I wouldn't. You know, if I wrote it now, it's another time and place. Look, I always, I'm like driving a Maserati down the road and I'm throwing these 150 miles an hour and I'm throwing these books out the window. And by the time the public gets them, I'm already like mm -hmm. much further ahead. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, I see some things in Nourishing Destiny that don't represent where I am now. I, I see some things that from the perspective of where I am now were naive and rightly so, although I still think they were very far ahead of the average culture of the medicine then. And I still think in fact, much of the medicine hasn't caught up to where Nourishing Destiny was um, 20 years ago. But I will say when Nourishing Destiny was done, I had been very influenced by a Chinese author named Louis Ming, who was perhaps one of the great, he was certainly one of the great interpreters of the Taoist canon in Chinese history. And he's my favorite renderer of the Taoist canon and the Taoist tradition. And he wrote a Taoist teaching and a Buddhist teaching. He was a physician, he was an ophthalmologist, but an enlightened adept. And, um, I had been very influenced by his texts on soul development and state and stage development, which I go much, much more deeply into. It's the whole point of this new book. And um, when I was done with Nourishing Destiny, I said to Emily, you know, I understand in my own experience 
how we gain original nature. I understand how we lose it. And I understand how we wake up to it and reclaim the authentic self. But I don't understand the enlightenment teaching. It's abstract to me. I, I've talked about it in my book, but I haven't seen it. And I felt a kind of sadness about that, feeling sort of locked out. And I hated having part of the teaching be abstract to me. So I got very serious and ultimately deadly serious. Very serious means you're very serious, but there's still time in the picture. Deadly serious means there's no more time. Deadly serious means it has to happen now or I'll die trying. Mm. Deadly, serious, deadly serious just means I mean it. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I got deadly serious and I did what it took. And, you know, um, got very, very serious about spiritual practice and spiritual inquiry and the trans, having transpersonal experience and intersubjective consciousness and really... Um, really waking up to non-duality then as a higher state experience and ultimately as um, at least a locatable dimension of my own experience whenever I turn my attention to it. And um, I got very serious about it. And so um, while there are some parts of Nourishing Destiny that I've transcended but included, you know, by tra in other words, I've grown beyond them. I've grown beyond them. I've transcended where they are. Um, I still think that book, relative to most of what else is going on in the medicine, still offers a lot of depth. I'd, I'd have written a few things differently now, but I, I still think there's some real authenticity there. Yeah. Well, it's such a, a valuable book for Thank everyone you. in the profession and beyond. Was that a springboard for what would come in your career? You're a world-renowned speaker and presenter and, and teacher. Was that, that kind of the, the watershed movement for you, the publishing of that book and its success? Well, yeah, I, I, I think it was, you know. Um, and even though I really believed in the book, Todd, I'm still delighted by the success of it <laughs> and, yeah, of and, and humble, humbled by the success of it because it's a lot to live up to you know, the values that are in that book, the cultivation of virtue and, and um, the recognition that destiny is not personal, but is shared. And so contextualizing all my experience through a shared obligation to others and to my own deepest self, mm, you know, and holding myself, always striving to hold myself to the highest that I know is true creates creates humility because of course we all fall short mm. yes we do you spoke of in the Tao Te Ching you have that is it's indicated that language creates reality what is meant by that well you know I just had a Taoist scholar write me that he started reading Nourishing Destiny and he read that line and can't get any further in the book and completely <laughs> disagrees and was totally furious with me. <laughs> and I tried to meet him 
like in a really friendly way, like I'd be happy to have a phone call or we could share some tea sometime and talk this out. I think it's a really <laughs> interesting inquiry. But just to keep it simple, Lao Tzu says the name that can be named is not the eternal name. Right? That it's mm. naming that cleaves the Tao into two things, the named Tao and the unnamed Tao. Mm -hmm. And you can see in Chinese culture, the newborn infant is given a family name like Wang or Li. And in their third month of life, which is the first birthday when the fontanelles close, begins to close, mm -hmm. they're sealing their contract with heaven and they're presented to the father for the first time. It's the first birthday because there's nine months in the womb, three months out of the womb. That's the end of the first year of life. The fontanelles are closing, meaning destiny is sealing being sealed within them they're presented to the father for the first name for the first time and the father makes them laugh and when the child has its first laugh the father gives them their personal name and the and the Taoist canon said and with the bestowing of personal name the seeds are now sown for the dawning of individual awareness separative consciousness the ego the mental rational ego very simply Tao is non-duality, and heaven and earth, yin and yang, are dual poles. Emptiness and luminosity are dual poles, they're duality, and, and they are named. So as soon as we say Tao, we have not Tao. Good, bad, should, shouldn't, left, right, up, down, in, out, fast, cold, right? The eight principles differentiating how things are coming apart in a dualistic sort of way. And um, it seems to be time and space seem to arise with human mind and human mind arises with the dawning of language. If I may, hearing you say that, it, it just brought to mind kind of the modern, modern day culture that we live in where everything gets named and labeled. And is that something similar to what you're saying that by, by creating classes of people, so to speak, we're, we're moving away from, from the way or the Tao. Right. Lao Tzu Chuang Tzu says you move from the three to the four to the 10,000 things. And when you start naming things, there's no end. And it's better to know when to stop. Hmm. To, the, the word to make a distinction in Chinese, Ming Ming, means to give a thing a destiny by naming it. Ming Ming. Give a thing a destiny by naming it means to make distinctions. Right. Look, hmm. and there's a, a place, you know, you want to stop at red lights. There's a place for discriminatory awareness. I, I think the Taoist and the Buddhist point is more that most people are habituated to it and are not introduced to and aware of and do not exist in wholesome relationship to the dimensions of the self beyond mental rationality. And let me just say that mental rationality is a fairly evolved state. And if we could get the whole, if we could get 51% of the planet to the, a condition of mental rationality, we'd be in a much better place than we're in today. Yeah. You know, one might go so far as to suggest if the leader of the United States could achieve a mental rational level of development. 
<laughs> we we would all be in a much better place today. So we don't want to really put mental rationality down. We have it's an it's a significant and important stage to attain that most human beings alive do not and will not attain in their lifetime. But the people who wrote the Tao Te Ching and Chuangzi and the Nanqing and Neqing and Ling Shu were not were mental rational but also had at minimally ex very well um, advanced state development um, beyond just waking life and some degree of stage development um, beyond mental rationality. How could that sort of perspective perhaps positively inform or influence our, our current state today? with and the, the, the extreme discrimin discriminatory nature of, of all. Is there something to be gleaned from a Taoist perspective and the non-naming? Well, of course there is. I'll just make the point that ma making painting with a broad stroke, there are two kinds of waking up. Waking up, waking up results in freedom. And there are two kinds of freedom. The traditional Eastern freedom is freedom from, and the traditional Western freedom is freedom to. The Eastern teachings in general tend to be regressive, which means Taoism particularly emphasizes a return to a primordial state. Lao Tzu means old infant. One who in his elder years, who has become a sage, has returned to the naive state of infancy. And that return to, so Lao Tzu says, I am the wilderness before the dawn. So returning, spirit has two directions, transcendence and imminence. Transcendence of our physical universe back to source, and imminence becoming more fully embodied, more fully into being, more fully into becoming. So we can talk about being and becoming. And from an integral point of view, I think we want to we want to um, embrace each. It's it's just not enough to, you know, Lao Tzu says that the sage lives in his town his whole life by his hut, and here's the crows. He, he, he hears the, the chickens crowing in the next town and he hears the dogs barking and he never meets their owners. And I mean, what's the relevance of that in the 21st century with the internet where you're interviewing me, you're, you're 3,000 miles from me and here we are in relationship having a, a, a reasonable degree of intersubjectivity in, in a dialogue together. Um, beyond space and time, in a sense, transcending space and time. So I think the Taoist and the Buddhist view, the Eastern teaching of return and transcendence, I think it's a foundation. I think it's beautiful. I think it's necessary and important. 
but I think the evolutionary perspective that we brought in the West the last several hundred years in particularly, and process philosophy from Heraclitus, Heraclitus said you can't step in the same river twice. So the idea of being in a process, um, process philosophy and recognizing not just that we're in a process, but that process has innate intelligence and innate intelligence. And that process is going somewhere. And the telos of it is toward the true, the good, the beautiful. I think that we very much have to embrace this um, as well, as opposed to mere transcendence. Merely, it's not enough to be free from the world now. We have to be free to engage with it because we need new political, social, economic, military, educational, and medical systems. And being freedom from is the basis so that we can achieve an emptiness to let, let the unconscious, let the subconscious gestate and come up with the you know, contribute to whatever these solutions are, but we need radical engagement with the world, not just to retreat from it. So I think the Eastern teaching offers us a part of the puzzle, but I have to say my own bias is at this moment in time, it's not the most important part. I love this. I can, I can have a conversation with you about Chinese medicine and we're an hour and change in, and we haven't once mentioned a single herb or acupuncture point. So this is a, a true Lonnie Jarrett conversation. Well, the thing is, you know, I mean, I do that in my books, and I, I just did a course. I just did a two-day course on spirit of the points. Mm -hmm. And I do a course on spirit of the herbs, and of course I can teach about all that. But to me, context is everything. Context is the most important. So my, my new book offers a, a vast, deep, and I you know, to me, a very profound and very, very beautiful context for understanding the um, most cutting edge role that our medicine can play at this point in history. It's just not enough to be able to treat Henrietta's sciatica holistically. What does it mean to get, to get Henrietta or Jack's sciatica better holistically in the moment of time when their species is threatened with extinction. It's not that it's a, I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything. It's compassionate for the individual. But if we look at what's the most significant, what's the largest, the deepest, the broadest, the most profound context for medicine at this moment in time, it has to be the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of values and the integration of a humanity to help it stop destroying its own body in the biosphere through its own repression and projections. 15 years into the writing of the book, when can we expect to actually hold this and read it? Optimistically, optimistically by Christmas, realistically January or February. Some, somewhere between December Jan to January to February. It's being edited now. Great. And it's 1,350 I... manuscript pages, which wow. means it's going to be about 800 book pages. Wow. And I presume you're self-publishing it again through Spirit Path Press? Yes. Yeah. And let me also, I would like to say before we conclude that I offer a two-year clinical integration class 
Yeah. And I've done, and you know, for year, for the last 25 years, I've taken 26 people in each cohort. And people have been asking me for 20 years to please do it online so they could avoid the, you know, the course itself has only been three to $4,000, but the travel can be 10 to 15. Mm-hmm. And so starting in tw- September 2021, I have that class online with an option of people coming in for four weekends in year two, or they can do year, which is a clinical year where we just see patients, or they can stream the whole thing online. And there are downsides to, you know, downsides to doing it online, because of course it's wonderful to be in a room together, but I'm really blown away that the transmission still comes through. And because I'm teaching through PowerPoints, the, the classes are very, very focused, and I can provide students with very detailed um, study notes and detailed directives in a way that it's much harder to do in a, in a lecture class. So people are invited, if you're interested in that, people are invited to look at um, my website, which is chinesemedicine.courses www.chinesemedicine.courses. Okay. You'll come to my website and you'll see the listing of my teaching. And for, the, for right now, this is the only format I'm teaching in. For the next year or two, I don't have any teachings outside of uh, my clinical integration classes scheduled. Now, just to clarify, you said September 2021, it goes online? Yeah. That's correct? Okay. And then are you still also moderating nourishingdestiny.com? Yes, I've got a website with 3,000 practitioners on it called nourishingdestiny.com. The, the discussion boards are free. All of my articles are for free under the article tab. And in the library, about 30%, 40% of the content is free. And the paid memberships are $60 a year for students and 125 to 250 for practitioners. And you can get PDAs where I'm interviewing Heiner Fruhoff, Zev Rosenberg, Will Morris, um, Elizabeth Dr. Michael Rochelle, Greenwood. Uh, Michael Greenwood, any, yeah. any number of thought leaders in our profession. Yeah. There's about 21 courses where I'm interviewing and um, thought leaders in the profession. And I think they're just great sort of cutting edge. Yeah thought-provoking classes. I'm actually sitting down with Dr. Michael Greenwood next week for an interview. I'll so. give him my love. I will. I will, yeah. Lonnie, outside of what we've discussed, because there's obviously so much that mm-hmm. that you're passionate about, what today, right now, has you most excited? I'm excited being done riding. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good just, one. 40 years writing 50 articles in these three huge textbooks. And it's really nice right now to not be using my mind. I actually look forward to um, writing poetry. I mean, reading poetry, reading poetry. I'm studying, I'm thrilled to death to have two hours a day to practice jazz guitar. You know, I've I've played guitar for over 50 years now and I'm learning jazz, and my son is a fantastic jazz saxophonist. He's a professional player. Wow. And he's giving me lessons, and I'm, you know, I'm a blues rock guitarist, so I'm finally really learning to play jazz. <laughs> Good and for you. 
it's nice to be able um i'm taking a a four-week training in shadow work now which is the first training i've been able to do for myself since the mid 90s when i stopped studying with leon and is that in person or online it's an online course who are you doing that with if you don't mind me asking I'm doing that with a man who I've never met, but who's come highly recommended to me named Kim Barta. Okay. And the course I think is called Dancing with Shadow. It's not too late to get on board. And uh, he's married to a woman named Terry O'Fallon, who is a leading uh, theoretician and researcher in stages of ego development. That's how I know him, Hmm. through, through her work on stages of um, human ego development. So it's thrilling to have Tom to actually take a class to actually, you know, it's funny, I tell people now that I've been in Shawnee's medicine for 40 years, I feel like I have a very solid basis to learn it. <laughs> like I think I could actually start studying it now, I guess, <laughs> which is ironic because I'm only going to be in my practice another year or so. Um, well, Lonnie, I happen to know a good school where you can yeah. probably get in. <laughs> well, I don't mean necessarily that. But it, no, it, I know. I'm, I'm having, do you know Brant? You know Brant Stickley. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so Brant is a good friend and I'm sponsoring him to come out to my office and teach a weekend on the six um, confirmations of, of the progression of cold as a metaphor for um, personal, cultural, and societal um, um, dynamics. Yes, yeah, so so Brandt is another fellow who's very interested in integral. Um, it's thrilling to be able to s- start s- studying, and I'm I'm happy to finish this book, produce it, put it out there, and the idea of having a few years where where I can start to just mentor students. And I even fantasize, you know, I was thinking, how cool would it be to drive cross country, like from here to Victoria? And just let people know where I'm going to be and come into each town and have 10 practitioners or 12 practitioners in each town every few days um, bring bring two patients in for consultation in a room and, you know, charge something, meet everyone, give a teach, you know, see two patients during the day, give a two-hour teaching at night, and then move on and do something like that. So be in sort of itinerant position. (laughs) That could be the next thing. <laughs> well, look, Lonnie, I really uh, have appreciated, I appreciate you doing this and I've enjoyed it. I was, before we came on today, I was just doing a quick web search uh, of your name. And the second thing that came up was a September 2012 workshop you were doing in Victoria, which I can only presume was at Pacific Rim College, which yeah, I think that was the last time you and I were together. So. It's uh-huh. definitely been a long time, so it's been really nice catching up with I'd, you. I'd, I'd, I'd love to come out again. You know, what happened was I started teaching in East Bay. Yeah. And the response was just overwhelming. And, you know, getting to Victoria is not the easiest thing. No, it's a long haul. Yeah. It, it, it's a long haul, and I felt like I had done it a bunch of times, but I'll be back out again. And in a couple of years, my wife and I are going to drive cross country, and we will make it to Victoria and I will absolutely love to come teach at the school. Just keep me posted. We'd be happy to have you back. Okay, you mentioned thanks. a f- you mentioned a few of the websites. Is that the best place for people to to reach you and find out what you're doing? Any other Yeah, pe- people 
people can um, email me at Lonnie, L-O-N-N-Y, at nourishingdestiny.com. Okay, so I'll put all Lonnie this in the show notes. At, yeah, Lonnie at nourishingdestiny.com. Spirit Path Press is where my books are, and we have some uh, Spirit of the Point cards there and some practice, some posters for people's clinics that show off uh, Chinese medicine in a very beautiful light. And um, nourishingdestiny.com is the, the website, and the Chinese medicine.courses is where to find me for uh, my classes and teaching schedule. Great. I also moderate Chinese Medicine Physician Scholars on Facebook, which has almost 3,000 members now. For the you know, on there, that's for the scholarly discussion of Chinese medicine. At nourishingdestiny.com, it's more for clinical questions. And um, yeah, I'm easy to get. I'm, I'm very easy to get for anybody who wants to engage. I mm. just ask that if people have a, a clinical question about what to do with a patient, that they ask that at nourishingdestiny.com. It, it is hard for me to spend the time to answer the same questions over and over and over again for individuals. I prefer to answer them for in a collective. Right. That's completely understandable. Look, the, the contribution that you've made to Chinese medicine is immense. I want to thank you. I'm sure there's many practitioners and students and patients out there who feel the same. And I'm very happy to hear that you've got another amazing book coming out. And I'm sure it's also going to have an incredible impact. So for yeah. your 40 Todd, plus the, years... The people who love me will love me more and the people who <laughs> hate me will hate me more. <laughs> well said. <laughs> One parting question. Yeah. University booted you out with your master's in neurobiology. Yeah. Has there been any reconciliation since then? Have they come back to you in any way yeah. to recognize first what you all, were on? First of all, almost all those people would be dead or in their late <laughs> 80s, 90s. I mean, I was 23 years old. I'm 62 now. So right. my professors who were 40 to 60 years old are right. The, the youngest any of them could be would be 80. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's all water under the bridge. I will say that on the 30th anniversary of being asked to leave, I went back and rented a room at the university and gave a weekend conference on Chinese medicine, <laughs> which, was, which was attended by acupuncturists and physician acupuncturists alike. And, and that was enough of a, that was enough uh, ironic justice for me. <laughs> <laughs> good about it. And frankly, Taking... you know, every door, every door that opens is a, every door that closes, a new one opens. And um, I have no regrets. I've Chinese medicine is such a beautiful, infinitely deep profession. It engages us as poets, as scientists, as artists, as as physicians. It engages every part of who we are. And I, I. Um, we're all, I'm humbled by the profession and I think we all should be an honor to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to let any listeners know who are in the Victoria area that we do have both of your books, Nourishing Destiny and Clinical Practice of Chinese Medicine in our bookstore at Pacific Rim College. And we'll certainly get 
the new one. Is that Deepening Perspective on Chinese Medicine? Yes. That, yeah, we'll certainly have that in stock as, as soon as you let us have it. <laughs> It'll be soon. Lonnie, thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. It's been good to catch up with you after all these years, and I look it's forward great. to meeting with you in person again sometime soon. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lonnie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with leading Chinese medicine teacher and author Lonnie Jarrett. If you want to learn more about Lonnie, pick up one of his books from our bookstore at Pacific Rim College or order online at spiritpathpress.com. Also, check out Lonnie's courses and forums on his websites, nourishingdestiny.com, chinesemedicine.courses, and lonniejarrett.com. That's J-A-R-R-E-T-T. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats during which I take men on purpose-driven adventures along British Columbia's wild coast. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcy's. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at PacificRimCollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming DotCast, Decaya Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up residence on a tiny archipelago off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.